Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the brand new Technology Intelligence Podcast with me, Harry DeKetfield. Technology is changing everything around us, from transport with Uber to housing with Airbnb. There is no distinction between tech and the rest of the world anymore. Tech is the world. The impact of this revolution is being felt in countless aspects of our everyday lives, now, today. So throughout this series, we're going to explore the future of technology and how it's affecting a number of specific, vital areas. The money in your pocket, the nature of your career, your health, your car, and how we spend our leisure time. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the Technology Intelligence Podcast for updates and remember to give us a review. In this first episode, we're going to look at the future of money. Here I am at Victoria Station, just around the corner from the Telegraph offices, and I've withdrawn some £20 notes from a bank machine. These physical notes are probably what most of us would visualise when we think of cash. Just last week, there was uproar at the idea of getting rid of one and two penny pieces, so it's clear we have an emotional connection with the physicality of money. It plays a role in all our lives, of course, and yet how we spend and manage our money, as well as the very way we understand what money is with the arrival of cryptocurrencies, is changing. So today we're going to head out to meet three leading entrepreneurs to learn more about how they're attempting to disrupt the way we use and spend money. But before we explore what the future might hold, I'm jumping on the tube to head over to the London School of Economics to look back at the history of money so we can better understand how we've got to where we are today. Lots of people tend to think that we began with a system of, say, trading gold or trading something like gold and gradually evolved into something slightly more intangible. That's quite close to a history of money that Adam Smith gave us. In fact, um, the story that he told us, an evolution of money from barter, it turns out has very little historical evidence. And in fact, money throughout the ages has always been exactly the same thing, which is transferable, negotiable credit. That's Dr Tatiana Cutts of the LSE, who teaches law, private law and monetary theory. It's interesting that the history of coinage can be conflated with the, the history of money. And in fact, the reason that coins have become so dominant in our monetary theory and our monetary history is simply the fact that they don't decay. So how did we get to where we are today? Where did it start? What was the big bang of money? People have different views of that. One answer is um, in ancient Mesopotamia, where the Sumerian economy was based on something um, in which people might have measured 
the money or the asset that they were transferring in silver, but in which actually um, that debt was never paid in silver. Um, so that's perhaps one of the first examples of a, a written monetary economy. So we assign a value to something, whether it's a coin or a note. And the idea is that everyone commonly accepts that that value is the value that we assign to it, effectively. Yeah, and the easiest way of getting everyone to accept that is if a state designates it as such. Mm. So it's currency by consensus, almost. Oh, currency by state mandate. That means that currency is effectively power and politics. They are linked because a state says, I designate what value is. Sure. And actually, the wave of economic and anthropological theory that came after this idea that money evolved from barter has emphasized that actually money often comes from the state making sure that its debt goes into circulation. And and it's not that markets tend to evolve from sort of principles of individuals engaging with one another. Rather, markets are designed by the state. And so very much money is bound up in this idea of power and politics. So when we talk about the disruption of a financial system, which insofar as state-issued money is concerned anyway, has functioned in fundamentally the same way for generations, we're really talking about something bigger, a disruption in the structure of power in our society. This recent boom in innovation is coming predominantly from the financial technology sector, or fintech for short. Now, fintech isn't necessarily new. Technology has been a part of finance for decades. In the 50s, you had credit cards. The 60s brought ATMs. Online banking arrived in the 1990s. Companies like Bloomberg and Reuters are long-established brands who helped the financial system become more efficient through the use of technology. Fintech started out trying to help big, established banks change their own software systems. But recently, they've begun to turn on those banks themselves and head out to make their own products and apps. So when did fintech suddenly become sexy and why? It was between 2010 and 2011. So if you actually look in 2011, there was the birth of a number of uh, companies like TransferWise, for example, probably the most notable, that was the first peak of this new wave of digitally native uh, financial services companies that have now become fintech. Firstly, the iPhone, you know, it was very clear that this thing was going to take over the world at this point. If you looked at any insight that was coming out in terms of sort of analyst reports, it was to show that smartphones were the thing of the future. Um, I think that you probably at the point where Apple was kind of on its, you know, massive rise and Amazon, you know, if you're winding this clock, you know, seven years for these companies, these guys hadn't quite peaked at being, you know, these sort of world eaters that they are today. Obviously, Facebook was really starting to come into its own and showing what's possible. I think the Facebook IPO was probably around about that time as well. And so the influence of the, of, of the valley into European uh, sort of startup ecosystem was also starting to really get traction. That's Michael Rolf of Yo-Yo Wallet. He's interested in disrupting one of the central ways in which we use cash in our everyday lives to make payments at shops when we're out and about on the high street. But rather than using coins and notes or even cards, he thinks there's an opportunity to improve that experience using our phones. Taking sort of a bigger step back to kind of the electronification of, of payment, um, you know, back in the day, Visa MasterCard created essentially the, the plastic that was, you know, used for a zip-zap machine. And, you know, these credit vouchers were then sort of processed, um, you know, in batch after the transaction. And as things like, uh, you know, businesses became uh, or had phone lines, then you had these card terminals and those card terminals worked off a mag stripe. And more recently, the development, you know, since sort of 2008, sort of chip and pin. Um, now... 2000 out 
quite interesting being the launch of chip and pin in the UK um, was also obviously the, the year from memory that the iPhone launched. And so really we're talking about massive changes in consumer technology these last uh, 10 years where it's now possible to do so much more through mobile. So yes, of course, the chip can now be used for those NFC transactions. That said, it hasn't really proven to be that popular in in-store environments because ultimately uh, using a, a chip and pin card to do a contact transaction is, is just as easy and just as nice an experience. As using your phone. As using your phone, yeah, mm. absolutely. This is where YoYo Wallet comes in. It's one of a number of digital wallet companies offering alternatives to cash or contactless. But to attract new customers, you need to add value beyond simply matching the ease of contactless, or NFC as it's known, on phones by creating an enhanced experience. So what we've done is we automate, as I said, the collection of loyalty, uh, the delivery of a fully itemized digital receipt, uh, the delivery of rewards, delivery of offers, and all of that off the basis that this QR code that you present represents you. And because we see what you're buying and we know what you're buying, the retailer knows what you're buying, we're able to automate that experience around how you deliver um, you know, that, that loyalty stamp, that loyalty point. And that's all possible through a mobile enhanced experience. Put simply, you can't do that with a piece of plastic. Do you fear a bit of a backlash about the fact that you're working with consumers' data? I think we're living in times where people have woken up to the fact that, you know, if the service is free, you are the product. But from Yo-Yo's perspective, we kind of welcome this change. So in Europe, there's obviously the uh, new regulatory, uh, regulation coming to force called GDPR. The whole purpose of GDPR is about empowering consumers to be able to make uh, more uh, informed decisions about who they share their personal data with. So an interesting story, again, back to the beginning of Yo-Yo. We made that decision very early on not to pass any personal or financial information to uh, retailers or to brands just because we have it. It's not our data, it's the consumer's data or it's the retailer's data. And if it's the retailer's data, it's because the consumer has consented to the quid pro quo. I will give you information about myself in return for rewards. Right? So, you know, you can't expect to be part of a loyalty program if you're a consumer without actually giving the retailer something to go on to, to make the experience better for you. That's critical, isn't it? That quid pro quo and understanding that it's a give and take. You give up data... And you get a free coffee or cheaper sandwiches or whatever, whatever yeah. it might be. And yeah, it's absolutely right. And is Yo-Yo very explicit about that quid yes. pro quo? absolutely. Okay, so I've left Yo-Yo Wallet and I've just ordered myself a cup of tea. But I chose to pay with contactless this time, so no rewards for me. But these digital wallets Michael speaks of attempt to disrupt the way we make normal payments, enhancing the bricks-and-mortar shopping experience for the customer and providing insights based on your behaviour to the retailer. Michael would argue that that helps keep the high street alive. And let's face it, the high street needs all the help it can get, what with shops closing down all the time and bank branches themselves. And it was pretty useful being able to pop into your bank branch and have a chat with the manager. Well, I think it was useful, wasn't it? I started my career in London in 1981 as a computer science graduate, and I spent my first six months working in a branch. And even then, um, you didn't know the branch manager. Um, it is rather a, an impersonal service where people came in and did transactions over the counter. That's Anne Bowden, CEO of new mobile banking service, Starling Bank. Since then, 
all the banks have been trying to find a place for the branches. And some of the research I did before starting um, Starling was to go around the world trying to understand what big banks were going to do about their branches. And I went to a number of banks in Australia and, and in the States, and the story was very, very consistent. We are refurbishing our branches, and they all have nice sofas and nice carpet. And um, we're going to use our branches for value-added transactions, selling mortgages. We don't want businesses coming in here to pay in cash and coin because that's not very profitable for us. So we're going to have these new-style branches, um, and we're going to move all the transactions onto the mobile. When you actually went into those branches, there was quite a lot of frustration on the ground. People did not want to buy a mortgage in the middle of the day. Those people were at work. And those local business people still wanted somebody to take in that cash and coin. So despite the fact that the banks wanted the branches to be different, the people still needed day-to-day transactional services. And if you go around the branches in the UK today, you know, whether you go to Barclays or Lloyd's or HSBC, they're very much the same except for the colour of the carpet. Anne's in a good position to comment because before deciding to help start Starling Bank, she spent 30 years working for the other side, running established banks such as RBS and AIB. So how is she looking to disrupt current accounts now that she's on the fintech side? Technology um, is at the heart of everything we do. So with a Starling account, uh, you have a MasterCard, a debit card, uh, plus access to all the payment schemes. And each time you make a payment, we have a huge amount of data around that transaction, where you are, what you are doing. And we show that information in an ice cream with maps and, and categorization. So you can see what you're spending at various merchants and those merchants are categorized. But the important thing is that each and every transaction has a lot of data around it. And we use that data um, with the help of machine learning and artificial intelligence to give the consumer insight. Insight into um, how they're spending the money and gives them information so that they can select the right products from our marketplace. Because it sounds quite freaky, doesn't it? You know, we're going to take your data, we know who you are, where you are, what you're spending, what the context is, and that means that we can put you together with some people, some mortgage providers, and, you know, they give us a commission. I don't know if they do, but, I mean, it sounds like a commercial model which is working to your benefit, but you're saying the consumer stays in charge. I think the important thing is that banks have done this all along. And the banks have used your data to sell you more products. And you never saw that data. It was used really against you behind the scenes. What we're doing is giving the consumer that data in their hands so they can share it with providers that they choose. But how do consumers know how best to use that data? You're always going to know how best to use that data, aren't you? That's, that's what you do. You're a bank. Yeah. I think there's a question of it's all about transparency and showing people um, the good and the bad about you know those relationships. And what we try to do is to give the consumer some advice about what they are expecting if they actually allow their data to be shared. And it's also very important to give them capability of turning that data off. And we need to actually help people manage their day-to-day data and not let it be used against them.
Having visited Yo-Yo Wallet and Starling so far, it's clear our personal data is playing an increasingly central role in our lives. And as both Michael and Anne state, it's important that we're responsible for the decision of who has access to that data. Just look at the scandal that has enveloped Facebook this week, with accusations that it has allowed the abuse by third parties of its own users' personal data. And that has wiped billions and billions off its share price value. So these kind of decisions have real commercial impact. Anyway, next we're heading five minutes north from Starling HQ in the city to Silicon Roundabout in trendy Shoreditch to pay our final fintech entrepreneur a visit. My name is Marie Flamand. I'm the managing director for Circle for Europe. And what does Circle do? Circle leverages new technologies such as blockchain, machine learning and AI to change the way consumer finance works. Our first product is called Circle Pay. It's an app used by millions of people across 29 markets, and it enables you to send and receive money like you do with an SMS or an email. So for example, say, um, I don't know, you and I went for a coffee, you pay for the coffee, I need to pay you back the coffee. I just know your email address. I can send you £2.50 for the coffee, knowing your email address. If you actually already have Circle, you get the money straight in your Circle Pay account. And if you don't, you get a link and you can download that and get the money. What we're trying to disrupt here is more this small daily payments that you need back and forth where you don't really want to actually ask people back. Do you have your IBAN number? Oh, sorry, I don't have cash. No one has cash on themselves anymore these days. And what you're betting on is that cash is effectively disappearing. You've already said it. No one has cash in their pockets anymore. Yeah, I don't know. What, did you buy stuff today or did you buy things? And Sure. Okay, did you use cash? No. <laughs> well, I think, yes. So we're definitely going to see cash disappear now. How fast is it going to happen? I think it will depend by countries. It will depend within countries, by cities and by geographies. It will depend by demographic. But it's already super interesting to see, for example, Nordic countries. Uh, cash is completely disappearing, right? In Sweden, um, if you go somewhere and you try to pay with cash, good luck. It's going to be very difficult. So yes, at Circle, we're definitely betting on that. We're betting also on the fact that new technologies such as blockchain can fundamentally change the way people handle not only their money, but also their assets. Okay, let's pause for a moment and talk blockchain. Blockchain is the technology behind cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, which have suddenly become, well, not mainstream, but certainly high profile in the last year as a result of their skyrocketing and then plummeting valuations, with lots of people wanting to get in on the act as investors. So what makes blockchain special? Well, instead of high-powered anonymous bank execs running the system, anyone with access to a bit of technical know-how and a suitably powerful computer can contribute to the running of the system by mining. But just what is mining when it comes to Bitcoin? Well, it involves running the complex problems which keep the transactional cogs of the so-called blockchain turning. In return, by helping to maintain the running of the currency, miners can be rewarded occasionally with the creation of a new Bitcoin, thus making the required investment in processing power and energy consumption financially viable. And so a whole new monetary universe outside the realms and control of traditional banks and governments is born. So the blockchain technology in itself decentralizes a lot of things, right? And can decentralize, yes, currencies as we know them, but can also decentralize assets as we know them. Um, that's the fundamental technology that is out there, which is super, super interesting. Today, when you want to send someone money, you actually go via a central institution. If I oversimplify, uh, say I want to actually send you some money via my bank, um, the money will first go to my bank, my bank will check with your bank, and then you'll have a transfer of money. 
That's why we call a centralized system because basically it all goes via a central institution, which is the bank. In a decentralized world, what's happening is that rather than having one central node, you have a lot of decentralized nodes, which are computers, which all securely encrypt that information and then enables us, rather than having to rely on only one centralized party, to rely on hundreds or thousands of network and nodes who are encrypted and who can do that more efficiently and more securely. So as a customer, I don't have to rely on that central institution anymore. I can do it directly to you without going through the bank in the middle. Correct. And the way that this is happening means that this is not just about finance. That is a decentralization of power. And that is where you get into the realms of politics, effectively. Yes, that's where you get into the realm of, you know, um, also regulation. So the technologies we're talking about are actually decentralized technology, no of no borders. Uh, and yet the, the states we work in and we work with are all around uh, institutions and closed borders and so on and so forth. That's why in particular, when we think about, you know, blockchain and the future of regulation for all of those uh, assets, which is super important, right? At the end of it, we all have to protect consumers. And, and at Circle, we work very closely with regulators to make sure that we can do that. But how are we doing that in a world today, which is very much still thinking state by state, right? That's forcing us, it's gonna force us to have to think together. So we've heard from three different fintech companies who are creating new ways for us to use cash, disrupting the traditional methods which preceded them. But how is it that these small startups manage to compete with the much more established big banks? Anne Bowden of Starling explains. Well, I've been 30 odd years in traditional banking, in big technology roles, operation roles, um, front office roles. and. My story was after ABNM and RBS, I spent a year out in fintech where I saw people building companies, building customer propositions using you know, a couple of hundred thousand. And I was... You're talking a couple of hundred thousand pounds. Yes, a couple of hundred thousand pounds um, compared to 30, 40, 50 million for the equivalent in a big bank. And I learned an awful lot from working with these um, fintech companies. So much so that when I went into AIB uh, post the financial crisis. Allied Irish Bank. Yes. Um, a big bank in, uh, well, in Ireland that had taken a huge bailout uh, during the crisis. And I went in with the objective of trying to help turn the bank back to profitability. And it was a huge restructuring job, and it was really, really difficult to do the job. And we did return the bank to profitability. But I began understanding the whole retail banking proposition and understanding what could be done and what couldn't be done in a big bank. And I came to the conclusion it was easier to quit, start a new bank, faced with the problems of starting with one customer and building up from there. But it was easier to do that than to actually turn around these juggernauts. The big banks will copy absolutely everything ourselves and the fintechs will do. There's no hesitation. They will copy. But what they can't do is copy the cost base. Are they vulnerable? Do you see one of them think, I don't think you're going to be around in five years' time? I think they're working very, very hard. Um, I don't know who will survive and who will fail. Um, they are taking it very, very seriously. There's a huge, huge challenge there. They're sitting on tens of thousands of people supporting legacy systems and processes 
We're doing it all here with a leading-edge technology for hundreds of people. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can hear a daily update on the latest technology news from The Telegraph. Just search for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Looking to the future, however this battle between the fintechs and the established banks plays out, I posed the question to all our entrepreneurs, are we likely to be looking at a cashless society by, say, 2020? First, Michael Rolfe. Actually, I'm a little bit disappointed that Philip Hammond wasn't a bit more ballsy with his uh, we're going to get rid of the one and two piece. Um, I think had, uh, had there been a little bit more momentum behind actually making that a reality, I think we could say in 2020 that it's far more likely that... Uh, you know, we'd see a, a speeding up of the depletion in terms of cash in the economy. Downing Street had to come out within 24 hours. I said, no, 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 don't yeah. worry, we're not going to do it because there was yeah. such a public backlash. There is still yeah. that emotional bond. The reality is that, uh, you know, things take many years to, to change. I kind of, um, you know, would probably think things can happen a lot faster than perhaps some older generations. Um, and the reality of life for change to happen is you do wait for these older generations to pass on. And so I think what you see here is when someone like Philip Hammond makes that announcement and then Downing Street has to come out, it's because there's still lots of older generations that kind of like the way the world works. But their view is valid as well, isn't it? Of course. But what it does do, Cash, is it means I can take 200 quid out the wall or you know, extract from my bank and then no one knows what I do with it. It's liberty. It's privacy. It enables me to, to pay for things without there being this digital record tracing me every meter of my journey through life. Yeah, look, I think for, for certain segments of the population, that may be important to them. Do you think it's increasingly unimportant for I lots of yeah, people? I absolutely do. You know, we're in a digitally native world now, and I think we just have to accept the fact that you know, there are aspects around our daily lives that, that are digitalized. Now, if you're doing things that aren't wrong, then that's not a problem. I think there are far greater freedoms that, that you can wish for. And Bowden goes one step further and speaks of the war on cash. Big, you know, supermarkets or anybody who actually takes in cash have to pay the bank a fee for processing the cash. So it's in everybody's interest to go cashless. The war against cash, who knew? Yeah, yeah, and it's very expensive. And for, you know, for many, many years, I'd stand up in the conference every year and say, um, we haven't won the war yet, but next year is going to be better. We saw the signs. It is only in the last 18 months or so I've really seen a difference. I think it will depend by country. Let's talk about the UK, 2020. I think there'll be very little cash left. Look at the speed at which it's actually growing up right now, like cashless payments. I was at a conference this morning. There were 100 people in the room and I asked, you know, who made a payment today? Everybody made a payment. Who used cash? No one. Marie Flamand. Now, of course, these entrepreneurs are, by their very nature, motivated futurists. So for the more sober, academic perspective, here's Dr. Tatiana Cutts once again. I don't think cash will completely disappear in the next two decades. Um, I think we probably will end up getting rid of our very small denomination coins. That's a slightly separate question. But there will be some activities that we engage in, in which we are both looking at a type of digital money. So perhaps this is a, is a, a virtual reality transaction or an online transaction. Um, and also that that money is a sort of private money. So it's not a state money. It's a money that is accepted as being a currency within a small environment. Um, that will not necessarily be fully proprietary money. So it won't necessarily be money that people can completely trade out of. So think things more like American Express points associated with a particular community online and query whether that actually empowers the, the user or not. 
so it's a way of expressing yourself. You might wear a certain suit because you think, I like this certain herringbone pattern, this is the kind of guy I am. And you might spend a Brixton pound because you think, hey, I'm a Brixton pound kind of guy. Absolutely. So if we pivot from this question of cash versus cashless societies and instead look to the future of currency itself, are the supposedly democratised and decentralised blockchain technologies first mentioned earlier on by Marik inherently better than our current centralised systems? Insofar as it was designed with a purely democratic model in mind, it's not true to say that that model has been perfectly executed. So there are points of confluence of power in the system. One is in respect of those who design the code. Um, So those who get to design the future of the protocol. In theory, that process is entirely openly accessible. In practice, not so much. Secondly, the, the big power players in terms of determining uptake of that model of that protocol are the miners. Um, And those have congregated into fairly strong mining pools. And lastly, of course, there are concentrations of wealth in the system that enable price manipulation. And insofar as the users themselves actually have any say in how the system operates, um, that's just not not true. They are, to some extent, um, disenfranchised. Like our established currencies, which Tatiana suggested at the top of the episode, were historically created by state entities, blockchain too has a creator. Who it is, no one is quite sure, but one name has been mentioned, a mysterious Satoshi Nakamoto. And as with other currencies whose rules can be changed through legislation, the code behind Bitcoin too can be changed, but by a small team of developers. Marik spoke earlier of the decentralised nature of the network, maintained by the activity of miners all around the world, which should mean a wide power base. But the reality is that much of the mining is in the control of small groups, which has led to those individuals also controlling much of the wealth within that currency. This is beginning to sound more and more like the established currencies we're all much more familiar with. So are these weaknesses in the system unavoidable as that system grows? The more that uh, an institution grows, whether that institution is decentralised or not, the more the problems of attaining consensus uh, are, the, the, the bigger they grow. And you do need to have individuals who get to determine what the future of that entity looks like. If those individuals are accountable and have to operate with respect to a constitution that's designed with particular objectives in mind, I think I prefer that model. And so what I worry about with um, putative decentralization is that we will end up with um, areas in which power is being exercised by a fairly small group of individuals, but in which A, that's not apparent and B, it's not accountable. And so I would like to see a future in which the, the way in which money is used is designed in advance with respect to these questions of financial inclusion, um, of real diversity, right? So the Bitcoin network is is white, male, and uh, technologically able. And that actually operates to exclude certain members of society. And so I do think we need to think about these questions of how do we, how do we design money for the future in a way that's directly cognizant of its social implications. Because otherwise we have something which we think is going to liberate us, but you're not in control of it because you didn't come up with it. And the people who did come up with it aren't accountable. And so that's more like enslavement than liberty. 
I would hesitate to use the word enslavement. Um, but yes, I think if we are trying to design a monetary economy that gives maximum freedom to the individuals involved, then we do need to tackle these questions head on of what kind of uh, an economy do we want and which members of society are going to be engaged in that economy. The power in the hands of the many, not the few. Well, the power in the hands of the representative few who are accountable to the majority. It's this question of um, direct democracy or representative democracy. Um, and it, it, it's been demonstrated time and again that a good representative democracy can do that work very well. It seems clear to me that Challengers to established systems want to become established systems themselves. Fintech startups want to take the place of big banks. But what happens when they become big themselves? Won't they run into the same problems? And the same goes for cryptocurrencies. When and if they take the place of established fiat currencies that we know today, won't they have to be dealt with by the same legislation and regulation that established currencies do today? It's impossible to know. But what seems very likely is that established players, whether that's the Bank of England regulating currency or banks on the high street with your money, are not going to stand still. They're going to incorporate the changes that fintech and crypto are bringing. So where does that leave cryptocurrencies and fintech players? Aren't they just going to be crushed? Well, they argue not. This dance of death between the small but nimble and the large but lumbering really characterises the future of money itself. Who wins and who loses will change everything about the way you spend, earn and save, right down perhaps to whether you get to keep those one penny pieces in your pocket. For the moment though, it is rather satisfying to have a fistful of £20 notes in my hand. I think I might just pop off and spend them. Now, where's my favourite pub? On the next episode of Technology Intelligence, we'll be looking at the future of transport and specifically your car. From battery technology to safety and navigation through to entirely new models of ownership, we'll be speaking to entrepreneurs on the cutting edge to discover where these developments might lead. Will your next car be electric? Will it be driverless? Will it still even be parked on the street outside your home? All this and more we'll discover next time. Subscribe to this podcast for updates and remember to give us a review. To find out more about the Tech Intelligence Podcast, visit telegraph.co.uk. Finally, if technology is your thing, you can, as mentioned earlier on, hear a daily update on the latest technology news from The Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.